How do we know God? How do we view him? How do we understand righteousness? How do we view our own good works? Though they have taken on different forms, these have been some of the dominant questions that have run through the church since its inception. How it's chosen to answer them has changed. It's varied from time to time. It has shifted with the cultural assumptions of the present age. And because of this, it has led to the fundamental question of if there is an overall biblical theology present within Scripture that provide a framework, one that addresses these questions in a way that transcends whatever popular ideology or philosophy permeates through the world at any given generation. For the reformer Martin Luther, the answer would be the Theologia Crucis, or the Theology of the Cross, a theological approach that would weave its way through every aspect of his faith and his understanding, as he contrasted it against the Theologia Gloria, or the theology of glory that prevailed in his age. Yet does this Theologia Crucis hold up against dominant political assertions within our age? Is it a relevant biblical framework that applies today? Does it provide for us a scriptural approach for how we see God, how we understand righteousness, and how we approach Christ? That's what we'll be discussing this week as we continue our exploration on theological terms and phrases that Christians should know. I'm Wyatt McIntyre, and this is Our Timeless Faith. Late in April of 1518, Martin Luther, professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg, the man who just a few months prior had nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church, sparking what would become the Protestant Reformation, was given a platform in Heidelberg to speak by his confessor, the vicar general of the German Augustinian order, Johannes von Staupitz. The hope here was that he would speak to those views that he had expressed and recant those thoughts that were considered to be more problematic for the church. In many senses, Rome had given the Augustinian order a chance. They were to bring their house in order by reigning in this troublesome monk, putting him back in line. And this meeting, this meeting was a perfect opportunity. For Luther, though, he had embarked on a path for which there was no return. There was no turning back. As he would later express at the Diet of Worms, he was held captive by his conscience, which he could not rightly ignore nor deny. 
Yet his focus here wasn't a defense or a retraction of his disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences. No, it wouldn't even be mentioned. Instead of recanting, instead of making an effort to backtrack or to apologize, instead of worrying about the implication that holding firm would have on him personally, he focused his attention on canon law. He focused himself on philosophy and scholastic theology looking at the teachings of Aristotle on matters such as virtue that had made their way into the church through the works of William of Ockham, Thomas Aquinas, and others. And here, here he would lay out what would become known as the Heidelberg Disputation. This Heidelberg Disputation would become the basis for what would be known as the Theologia Crucis, the theology of the cross, contrasted against the dominant theological framework of his day, what he referred to as the Theologia Gloriae, or the theology of glory. For Luther, this distinction... It was an incredibly important one because one either believed in a theology of the cross or they adhered to a theology of glory. They were either a theologian of the cross or they were a theologian of glory. There was no in-between, nor was there any room for compromise. It was all one or the other because you couldn't compromise on a theology of the cross without losing the fundamental premise of what it was and what it meant. So then the question becomes, what is the Theologia Crucis? What is the theology of the cross? To begin to understand this, we need to start by really telling the story of two conflicting ways of doing theology. Not just according to their ideas, but also according to their practical application. After all, the Theologia Crucis and the Theologia Gloriae, they are not just simply abstract concepts. They're not just mere ideas that exist somewhere out there, somewhere in the realm of the hypothetical for humanity. They have real and tangible consequences to them. They have real and tangible implications to what they mean and how they are actually lived out. In this sense, they have to be understood as being not just thinking about theology, but rather living and doing it. That's why in his disputation, Luther puts such a great 
emphasis on the idea that one is either a theologian of glory or they are a theologian of the cross, stating in Theses 19 through 21. The person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things that have happened. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the things what it is. You see, a theologia gloriae, or theology of glory, begins with a certain narrative that centers around human glory. And it projects that understanding onto God. The theologian of glory believes that God and the things of God are clearly and plainly evident by looking into the manifestation of his invisible attributes. They see temporal events and earthly works as a form of religious expression, translating these things into a theological framework or understanding whereby an image of God is able to be built is able to be constructed and formed based on human assumptions, judgments, and experiences. These various bits and pieces intending to offer a full view, then, of who he is. In this sense, divine revelation comes from human investigation of the world around them, which is in turn intended to inform their understanding and their knowledge. This God that is discovered in the theology of glory is one who is then defined by human standards, who's held up and measured by human understanding. The scholastic theologians of the medieval period, for example, thought a god who was not unlike a king or an emperor as they knew it, except that this god of glory was the standard by which all earthly kings and emperors would be measured by in power and in triumph. Offering wrath or favor, one could point to suffering or sickness as being his punishment. Or they could look to success as being a gift of his preference towards the individual. What we then see is that God becomes a God who reveals himself in power. He's a God who comes to the individual, arriving in their strength and in their success. This God of glory establishes his rules and his parameters 
in a way that allows for the individual in turn to earn merit before him. In this sense, the glory theologian expects that they will, by their works, by their strength, by their power, find success in this life or the next. Now, just to be clear, a theology of glory doesn't ignore the cross of Christ, nor does it deem it to be unnecessary. Rather, it has a view of it where the cross is nothing more than a means towards an end. In a theology of glory, man created in the image of God is still a fallen creature. It's just that in the fall, there remains in him something good. And this gives to man the ability to choose what is right, to choose what is noble, to choose what is good themselves. They are still capable of doing the good that is within them. And the cross? The cross, as a part of this narrative, serves as what can only be considered or called a help on our road or our path towards glory. We can picture it a bit like this. For a theologian of glory, man is on a road. He's on a road amidst a journey back to God. On this journey, he stops at a cliff, and he looks across it to see another cliff on the other side. And he knows that that other side is where he needs to be in order to, in order to continue his journey. But there's no real way across it. Once there was a bridge that existed there, it connected these two sides, but it's since collapsed. It's just, it's gone. It's of new, no use to him. The problem here is that the distance between one side and the other, it's too great for a person to jump. And he can't reach the other side. So, what is there to do? How can this be fixed? Or how can this be remedied? What can be done to correct this situation? Well, the cross. The cross is set in place of the bridge in order that man may walk across it so that he may pass and continue his journey. So he may reach the other cliff, the other side, and work his way along that road to glory.
in this, the central figure in this story is man. It's man on the path back to God. The cross serves as the means by which he is able to continue to make that journey. But man and his glory, that is the inevitable end. The cross is not central. Rather, it is simply a part of the larger story as it's told. The cross is a sufficient help in the theology of glory, but that is ultimately all that it is, a help. Thus, the theology of glory, centered around man and his success, is framed against the backdrop of man's ability, against the backdrop of man's strength and his capacity to grow. Failures and weaknesses, they are because he hasn't done enough or he hasn't progressed far enough on his journey. It's because he is insufficient or because his faith is ultimately insufficient. And as we look at this theology of glory, we come to realize something. We come to realize something very important and very fundamental. That is namely that it's not limited to just medieval theology, nor is it something that can be found only in scholastic thought. It is something that remains incredibly prevalent in our society today. It's something that we see all around us, woven into our religion and our faith. We see forms and shapes of it in the so-called prosperity gospel. We see it in this therapeutic theology that is so popular, in the life coach sermons and the self-help preaching that has become so prevalent in our churches. It's there in these books that line the popular religion bookshelves, featuring the latest pastor with a glory message for their readers. It's everywhere where we declare that we just need to be a good person. We just need to live a good life. And God? God will accept me as I am. This Theologia Gloriae, it didn't just die a slow death with the Reformation. It didn't just suddenly disappear with the Heidelberg Disputation, nor did it fade away into the palpably obscure. No. It has this way. It has this way about it, whereby it keeps appearing and reappearing, reemerging with a new and shiny label on it. And honestly, 
honestly, why wouldn't it be popular? Why wouldn't it strike a chord with people? Why wouldn't it appeal to them? It, after all, speaks to their flesh, telling them exactly what they want to hear about themselves, telling them exactly what they want to hear about success, about failure. It tells them exactly what they want to hear about their ability to choose good. It tells them exactly what they want to hear about the ability to do this good that lies within them. Whether we want to believe it about ourselves or not, the flesh is drawn to a human-centered religion. It is drawn to a me-centered righteousness ethic. And there is no denying it. There is no ignoring it. What's missed, what is missed, though, in this theology of glory is what it ultimately produces, what it ultimately creates. And that is pride and vanity. It focuses on the individual. It focuses on raising up the individual, taking glory away from God and taking glory away from Christ. And in that... It ends up calling evil good and good evil. The Theologia Crucis, on the other hand, it calls the thing what it actually is. And it is starkly contrasted with the Theologia Gloriae. In opposition to the theology of glory, Luther declares in a later lecture on the Psalms, Crux sola est nostra theologiae, or the cross alone is our theology. The Theologia Crucis, or the theology of the cross, preaches what Paul would refer to as folly to the world to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those who are being saved. Here, the cross is not simply a part of man's journey, nor is it simply an aspect of his road back to glory. Rather, the cross is, in and of itself, the story the whole story. As Gerhard Verdi would write in On Being a Theologian of the Cross, Reflection on Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, 1518, the cross draws us into itself so that we become participants in the story. As Paul would put it in Galatians 2.20, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just as Jesus was crucified, so we are also crucified with him. The cross makes us part of its story. The cross becomes our story. That is what it means to say, as Luther did, the cross alone is our theology. It is in the cross that we are drawn in, that God draws us in. And it is in the cross that we find ourselves, our true selves, our true identity in Christ. The theology of the cross is not about finding God in glory, but rather about seeing him where it is that he chooses to reveal himself to us. This isn't a place of power, nor is it a place of authority. It isn't on the throne of a king or an emperor. Rather, it is in lowliness and humiliation, in suffering and in sorrow. In a very real sense, he reveals himself in a way that can only be called a mockery of the powerful. He is a baby in the manger, lying in the trough and in the hay at great risk, defenseless against the powers that are moving against him. He's a criminal who is whipped and beaten, a criminal who is made to carry the instrument of his death on his back. He is the one who is humiliated as he is crucified and who lays as a corpse in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. In this sense, there is a hidden God and a revealed God. And this hidden God reveals himself in the midst of a lost and broken humanity, an existence that is marked by total depravity. In this sense, what we come to realize is that no one has seen God except for the person of the Trinity who set aside his power, who set aside his might, and came down to dwell amongst us, incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man. He, he is the God who draws near to us. And this Christ that we behold, this Christ, true God and true man, is one who had his side pierced, who shows to all as he did to 
Thomas, the holes in his hands where the nails pierced them. It is this God who is willing to suffer pain and humiliation on the cross, who cries out from it, who shows to us the full measure and depth of his pain. And in that, demonstrates the full measure and depth of the beauty of God's love. It is this God, the sacrifice for our sins, who shows us there is no good within us, and that any and all attempts to do the good that is within us, as these theologians would, of glory would say, fall short. It is, after all, as Luther states, our sins that have brought about Christ's torture and torment. It's our works that pierced his hands and his feet. It is our evil thoughts that laid the crown of thorns on his head. It is only through the cross that man can come to know and experience God, and only through utter and complete dependence on it that one can be saved. If one does not know God hidden in suffering, then the truth is they do not know him at all. Because this, this right here, is where God shows himself. This right here is where God reveals himself. Not that we may catch a glimpse of him from the corner of our eye, but so that we can see him for who he is, as he is. And because this is where we come to see God, where we come to experience God, it is here that we find our true self, where we find our real identity, even as it calls on us to leave everything at his feet and live by faith in him. It's here, then, that true freedom is found in faith, love, and hope as God restores his elect crucifying them with Christ and raising them up into a new life with him. God appears in weakness, and in that weakness, he saves mankind. As Isaiah declares, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In this Theologia Crucis, then the entire framework of theology is inverted. God doesn't come in glory. He doesn't come as a 
temporal king. He doesn't come as a powerful emperor. He comes in humiliation. He comes in lowly and meager estates. And he suffers for us. One's own strength, it doesn't add a single measure to them. Nor does the law save. It doesn't have any power of merit. Rather, what we find is that the law it keeps condemnation on us amidst our total depravity as it reveals to us the full measure of our sins. It carries with it the wrath of God, killing, reviling, accusing, judging, and condemning everything and everyone who is not in Christ. As for those good works that we do, they may look attractive, they may look good, but they do nothing, absolutely nothing to appease God. Rather, relying on human strength, understanding, and wisdom, they exist outside of grace. Thus, as Paul declares, all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse because they cannot possibly fulfill all aspects of the law. In fact, it's a law that makes us into hypocrites. It's a law that makes us those whitewashed tombs that appear to be beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they are filled with filth and dead bones. The work of God? The work of God, on the other hand, appears in the eyes of men to be grotesque. It appears to be ugly or deformed or bad. In some senses, it appears to be just outright cruel. Yet, it is only the work of God that has eternal merit. It is the only true form of merit. It is the only true form of righteousness. He is not righteous who does much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. What then of our free will? To understand the will and its helplessness to save us, only condemn us, it's perhaps important to consider what the Apostle Paul said in his epistle to the Ephesians. In the second chapter, he states that we are dead. We are dead in our iniquity. We are children of wrath, subject to the power of the prince of the air. It isn't simply that we can't choose good. There is no good in us according to our nature. Our default mode is unrighteousness. And every act that we perform, it is cloaked, it is drenched in that nature. We are free only then to do evil. Yes, 
we may have the capacity for righteousness quorum mundo, that is, righteousness before this world, an act of civil righteousness in relation to our neighbor and this temporal world, a righteousness that obeys the laws and those powers and authorities that are placed above us. Yet, even these works are, at their heart, at their very nature, imperfect. They fulfill our earthly responsibility and nothing more. And even as they fulfill our earthly responsibility, they are still tainted by the sinful flesh. Righteousness quorum Dio. Righteousness before God, on the other hand, we have absolutely no capacity for. We have absolutely no ability to perform. This, this is an alien righteousness to us. It is passive. It comes not from us, but rather from God. God acts upon us outside of ourselves by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the cross. The cross itself that presents to us our clearest evidence of this fact, of all of these facts. It is the cross of Christ that shows us that our will is meaningless in righteousness. For it is through the cross that we see that God chooses us, not that we choose God. It is through the cross that we have the evidence that righteousness comes from God alone, and in then imputed upon us through Christ's sacrifice. As Paul would write to the church in Galatia, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We are thus capable of righteousness only in a passive capacity when we are overwhelmed by grace, when we become slaves to grace, held captive by it, when the Spirit works through us. Crucified with Christ, we are raised transformed by grace, a work of God, not of ourselves, lest any man boast. It is he and he alone who justifies us through the gift of faith. And he justifies us through the cross. As we come to realize this, as we come to see all of these things clearly, 
what we then come to recognize is that a theology of the cross does not lend itself to the dominant thoughts or ideas of our ages. It doesn't lend itself to a society and a culture that tells us that we just need to think positive thoughts or we need to just bolster our low self-esteem. It doesn't lend itself to it because the individual, the individual is not prepared to receive grace unless they are in utter despair about their own abilities. It is that despair, looking to the cross, that prepares one for the gift of grace. How God, through his spirit, prepares us for us, convicting us completely. According to this theology of the cross, then, those who are in Christ are not only called to believe in him, they are called to be crucified with him. As the German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer would state in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Jesus must therefore make it clear beyond all doubt that the must of suffering applies to his disciple no less than to himself. Just as Christ is Christ only in virtue of his suffering and rejection, so the disciple is a disciple only insofar as he shares his Lord's suffering and rejection and crucifixion. Discipleship means adherence to the person of Jesus and therefore submission to the law of Christ, which is the law of the cross. He would then go on to later state, a few paragraphs later, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work and follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead at his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and loss. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. The disciple of Christ, the follower of Christ, the one who beholds God rightly as he reveals himself, then denies himself, and they take up their cross, and they follow him. 
not suffering for their own sin, but rather coming to him in their weakness, in their failure, in their denial and their renunciation of glory, in complete and utter humility, in taking up their cross, the Christian comes to recognize something crucial, something that is absolutely fundamental. This is namely that they are not guaranteed a life of ease and comfort. They will not necessarily live a life that is marked by what would be considered worldly success. To try and avoid suffering at all costs, to try and pursue happiness at every turn, at all costs, is not only realistic, it ultimately brings more pain than it alleviates. As Luther would express in his sermon on cross and suffering, every Christian must be aware that suffering will not fail to come. It is inevitable. The suffering that he speaks of is not suffering that is easily dismissed. It is suffering that we would desire to be rid of if we had the opportunity, if we had the chance. It's a suffering that challenges us at every turn. It's a suffering that brings pain and sorrow. It brings anguish. It's a suffering that is hard to express, hard to give voice to or have words for. Yet, in their suffering, in their adversity, in the challenges that will come, the believer centered on the cross, on the cross of Christ, having faith in Christ. They have nothing to fear, not even the grave itself, because they are made perfect in their weakness. They are more than conquerors through him who saves them. What's more is that we are assured of a wondrous promise. The inclination of humanity it is to ask, where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my pain and in my sorrow? Where is God in all of this? Here, though, here we find our answer. For Christ is there. He is there with us in all of our suffering. We need not perceive him or see him, but he remains there to be drawn upon in faith. And in this suffering, we are blessed because we are conformed to Christ himself to the suffering servant. Now to be clear about this, 
This isn't to draw us into some form of sentimentalism about suffering or Christ's suffering, which, well, which can be our tendency, particularly in an age where we are inclined to sentimentalism and to view ourselves as victims, to view ourselves as victims of circumstances, and to see suffering as something that victimizes us. Christ, Christ, he stands with us in our suffering, and he identifies with it. But we cannot identify with his suffering, because we cannot fathom the level of suffering that he himself endured. It's beyond our scope or realm of understanding. We suffer for different reasons. We suffer from a world of sin, from the iniquity that permeates our existence. Christ, on the other hand, suffered because of us. The blameless Lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. Thus, it is to say that he stands with us, our comfort, knowing the full measure of our suffering, knowing the full measure of our pain, of everything that we are going through, leading us through the cross to the inevitable place of triumph that his sacrifice on the cross makes possible. Thus, the Christian in the cross is called to a radical faith, one which is freed from the bondage of their will, freed from the bondage of this world, freed from these false notions and these false assumptions about God and who he is, about who they are. They are freed from it by the God who calls them, that they may risk all that they are, that they may risk everything to love him. Thus, though we may, standing at the foot of the cross, laying at the foot of the cross, see it as suffering and sorrow and pain, we recognize that through it and by it, there is a joy and a peace. There is a comfort and a hope. There is a model of sacrificial love that gives everything a framework of love that we ourselves are called to live in Christ as imitators of Christ. We may look on the Theologia Crucis with skeptical eyes, particularly amidst our Western culture, particularly amidst our postmodern society. Some may, in fact, challenge it, saying that it focuses too greatly on the cross and not enough on the resurrection, on the fact that Christ triumphed over the grave, that Christ triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. 
that's just not the case. Why? Because it is the cross, the weakness and the suffering, the sorrow and the pain of the cross that is the focal point of all of this. And we if we do not center ourselves on the cross, if we do not look first upon the cross and we do not allow for the cross to permeate every ounce of our existence, we lose focus on the true works of God. In Verdi's words, thus the cross story claims us and we should make no mistake. Unless the cross story does claim us and become our story, we shall not escape the clutches of the glory story. And this theology, it has real world uh, implications. Not just in how we understand faith or how we understand God, but how we live out that faith. Honestly, honestly, there are still, in fact, many more aspects of the Theologia Crucis still to discuss. Because it's difficult to truncate it down into a short explanation or a short exploration of the topic. And because of this, hopefully we will have the opportunity to take the time in the future to discuss this in greater detail, to do a deeper dive into the Heidelberg Disputation as well as the bondage of the will, and perhaps even talk about not only the theology of the cross, but what it means to be a theologian of the cross. But then that's really all I have to say. I want to thank you for taking the opportunity to join with me and remind you that you can find Our Timeless Faith online at ourtimelessfaith.com. There I try to put out a new article each week. Sometimes it's every two weeks. But they are, generally speaking, longer pieces that are there to help to educate, inform, and strengthen believers in their faith. Right now, I am doing a few new things with those articles, so I'm pretty excited, and I would love for you to check them out and let me know what you think. You can also find Our Timeless Faith on Instagram and YouTube. The handle is just Our Timeless Faith. And you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, Twitter.com backslash Wyatt McIntyre and Facebook.com backslash Wyatt McIntyre. There, it's an open forum. So if you have any theological questions, if you have anything you want to discuss from a theological perspective, or give me feedback about these episodes, I would be happy to hear from you and happy to talk to you. So please feel free to check me out in those various places. If you love our timeless faith and you want to help make this show possible, you can donate through Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash our timeless faith. I usually try to put the books and the resources that I use to 
make these episodes or that I use to write my articles, but I'm having a little bit of a problem with that forum. So I've put that on hold for right now. Still, if you want to donate, it's another great place to connect with me. It's a one-tiered donation system of $5 a month. So please feel free to check that out. And if you feel so inclined, help make this show possible. But until we have the opportunity to meet again, may the peace of the Lord, that transcending, encompassing peace, that peace that surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, even unto life everlasting. Amen.